Fualsha, 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 Akharja Gale, and welcome to episode 92 of the Rebel Matters podcast. This is an extra special edition of the Rebel Matters podcast because it's coming out on a Monday as opposed to our usual Friday slot. And the reason for that is that we are releasing this episode to coincide with International Women's Day 2021. The 8th of March has been used to mark, celebrate, and acknowledge the struggle of women in some shape or form for over 100 years. It also offers opportunities to highlight current struggles that women face today and show solidarity with various movements all around the world. And on the most basic level, it's a good chance to show your appreciation for the women in your life. Anyway, we wanted to do something special to mark the occasion here on Rebel Matters and Vicky and myself were delighted that Bernadette Michalski and Deirdre Michalski were happy to come on and have the chats with us for this special International Women's Day episode of the Rebel Matters podcast. Bernadette is known all over the world for being a lifelong human rights activist and in particular for being a leader of the civil rights movement in the North and also for being elected as a member of Parliament for Mid-Ulster between the years of 1969 and 1974. While on tour in America in 1969, Bernadette was given the key to New York City, which she subsequently gave to Eamon McCann to present on her behalf to the Harlem chapter of the Black Panthers. And she was gravely wounded in a Loyalist gun attack when she was shot nine times, along with her husband Michael, who was shot twice, whilst... Their three children, Roisin, Fenton and Deirdre, were in the house in 1981. Deirdre, who I've known for about 20 odd years, is currently an assistant director with the National Children's Bureau. She also worked for Belong NI, the Northern Ireland Human Rights Commission and also Amnesty International. You might also have seen Deirdre on the big screen in Some Other Son, Pullin' Moves or the film Erica Fada. And actually that's kind of how myself and Deirdre got to know each other because we were both doing a bit of work in the theatre company, Ashling Gare, about 20 odd years ago. And another interesting fact about this chat is this is actually the first time that Deirdre and I have ever spoken in English together. As is usually the case with the Rebel Matters podcast, it kind of forms a good starting point and introduction to the guests and then the invitation is there for you to go and find out more about it in your own time if you're interested to do so. And if you do want to find out more about Bernadette and the civil rights movement, then just uh, go to Google and YouTube and that is a good starting point. There's plenty of material there. In the chat that's coming up here, you'll learn a little bit about the current work that Bernadette and Deirdre are doing at the minute. We spoke about women's role and the recognition that they're given for that role in the conflict and the political struggle in Ireland. We touched on Bernadette's trip to America in 1969. Deirdre speaks about her awareness of what was going on all around her as a child and we finished up the chat by looking at various elements of struggle in times gone by and the kind of lessons that we can take from that and what we can do going forward to make a positive contribution to struggle, revolution, well-being, life and 
I suppose sustainability and happiness as well is kind of where we finished up at. A few small things before we get stuck into the chat. First of all, I just want to say a massive thank you to Bernadette and Deirdre for taking the time to come on to the podcast. And secondly, I want to give a massive shout out to long-term friend of the podcast, supporter and ever-present soundboard, Cahal McDavid. Cahal has been a pivotal influence on the direction of the podcast at critical times along the journey so far. And we've had many long, deep and meaningful conversations and debates about episodes after they have gone out, mostly as we were roaming the streets of Cork late at night. Anyway, the reason that I'm giving Cahal a shout out today is that a couple of years ago I got a phone call from Cahal about 10 o'clock at night or so and he was saying that he was after getting clamped in Cork train station, in Kent train station when he was after coming back from a work trip to Dublin on the train he got out and found that his car was sitting in the car park unfairly shackled with a big yellow clamp on it and the mad thing was that Cahill actually had a valid parking disc shown in the window of the car so we weren't really sure why the car got clamped in the first place anyway we took it upon ourselves to deface the clamp as best as we could we drew a nice few pictures with sharpies on the clamp and left a couple of nice messages in Irish on the clamp for the clampers whenever they came to take the clamp off. In the meantime, Cahill had to pay €120 to get the clamp released and also got in contact with the clamping company to let them know that in no uncertain terms that this was a miscarriage of justice and that he shouldn't have been clamped because he had a parking ticket, a valid parking ticket shown in the window of the car. Anyway, between the jigs and the reels, Cahill was at home in Uri recently and found a letter that was addressed to his good self. And when he opened it, he realised that there was a cheque for €120 in it from the clamping company and a wee apology for this grave miscarriage of justice. They didn't say anything about our artwork, but Cahill has kindly donated the €120 to the Troublemaking Fund of the Rebel Matters podcast. So I just wanted to say a massive Gurkhead Milamayagat to Cahill for that donation. That's one for the Revolution and the Rebel Matters podcast, zero for the Clampers. As a side note, if your car is ever unjustly shackled, don't be afraid to take a Sharpie to the clamp and write the Clampers a wee message or maybe even a bit of poetry. If you have any creative suggestions about what we should do with this 120 euros, then send us a wee message and we'll see what we can do. And on that note, a massive thank you to everyone who has been listening to the show, sharing it around on social media and getting in contact with us. And especially Gura Ked Milamayagov to everyone who has supported the show on Patreon. Last week, we got over 100 patrons for the show for the very first time. And we are proper chuffed with the endorsement that you guys have all given us by supporting us on Patreon. The show has got a good bit of media coverage in the last number of weeks, which has been really brilliant. And 
aside from the acknowledgement and recognition that we're getting from the media and most especially from our patrons over on Patreon. On a practical level, the support that we're getting on Patreon really helps us to keep the show on the road. Every episode takes around 20 hours of work between myself and Vicky. And literally, just in the last week, because we've hit over 100 patrons, we now have a bit of money that we can put towards helping us with the editing of the show. The patrons of the Rebel Matters podcast are literally keeping the show on the road. Two weeks ago, we got the first 50 prints of the Father Des Wilson print that we commissioned Jowell 666 to do, sent down to us by Damn Fine Print in Dublin, and they are going to be getting sent out in the next couple of days if they haven't already been sent to the patrons of the Fwinchog and Cull tiers. If you want to find out what the five different tiers of support are over on Patreon, they're ranging from three euros up to 30 euros a month and they're all named after our favourite native Irish trees. You can go over to patreon.com forward slash rebel matters and check it out there. As I was saying earlier, International Women's Day is a very good opportunity to acknowledge and recognize the women that you have in your life. So if you don't do anything else today, get in contact with one or more of the women in your life and tell them that you love them and you admire them and that they're class. And that is enough for me today. So let's get stuck into episode 92 with Bernadette and Deirdre Michalski. We're going to release this episode on International Women's Day, which is historically a time to acknowledge and reflect the women who have kind of struggled for rights and equality and also, I suppose, for showing solidarity for international causes all around the world. So all around the world. So I'm really looking forward to having a chat with you both. Uh, I was thinking maybe to get us started, could you just tell us a little bit about the work that you're both involved in at the minute? Go you first, sure. Right, I'll go first then. I'm uh, Chronolog- <laughs> Chronological order. <laughs> Age before beauty, I know. That's right, uh, thanks, Mama. thanks. Yeah. Uh, Johnny Shin, uh, well, I, uh, well, I'm currently working from home as a requirement of my employer on account of my age, uh, which I'm kind of annoyed about, but have to put up with it uh, and be a good COVID citizen. Uh, so I work, I've worked in, in STEP uh, from 1998, 1999, well, I was there before, but I've been, uh, I've sold my labour, as it were, I've been employed in STEP. And STEP, uh, as it's now just called, started its life as South Tyrone Empowerment Programme because it was a post-conflict programme in the council area. 
And it started off, uh, really, it started off as a wee networking group of people who didn't fit the peace story, which was really about, depending which way you wanted to look at it, it was about a fracture in the community along sectarian lines, or it was uh, the next stage of the denouement of a fight for United Ireland. But the people who the people who weren't in it were and who whose stories and, and whose life experiences were kind of sidelined through it all were women and children and people with disability and travellers and uh, people with mental health issues and uh, people who were just poor. And, and uh, we lived in, after we were shot, we lived up in River Park, best days of our life there today. Eh? <laughs> but uh, I grew up on a housing estate in Cookstown and uh, reared my own children up until the time we were shot in the in the countryside and then went back to uh, we were displaced people let's say you know there's names for everybody so we were in River Park and River Park was 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 really such a poor impoverished estate that they couldn't even protect themselves from the risks of having people who'd already been shot at coming in to live in their estate. So the estate wasn't about 50% made up of people who were emergency housed because they'd been intimidated out of somewhere else, either by the, by the political violence or by domestic violence or uh, just a number, a number of things. It was a very, very impoverished and disadvantaged community. Uh, so I settled in there and, and uh, said, I don't know about my children, but they were some of the best days of my life anyway, organising on that wee estate. And so STEP and a number of other groups like that came together to build a, or we were Gorgonas, to build that wee network called South Toronto Empowerment Programme. So basically it was myself and, and our wee group working with women and children on a very poor estate. Uh, another group of people who were working with people with physical disability. And then a couple of wee uh, cultural groups who had maintained uh, cross-community links across the villages right through, you know, right through the, the troubles and right through the war. And we came together and started to build our own I think what we were trying to say was the people whose fundamental rights and dignity and stories had been left out of the war should not be left out of the peace. That's where we came from. And so we built that wee network and built STEP. And then because of the political settlement and opportunities arising from economic stability, uh, we had immigration to meet the demand, meet the labour demand. And it was normal and natural to us the way we had, the way we worked, you know, our understanding of community. It was natural for us when new immigrants arrived in the Dungannon area, mostly to supply workers to the agri-food meat industry, the chicken industry, 
uh, and and harvesting. Yeah, so that's really what it was. And then later on, coming in from Eastern Europe with uh, engineering skills. So we had a big increase in the population over a short period of time from 1999 to 2004. And it made sense for us. It just was a natural thing for STEP to do, to widen that community circle, to include the new neighbours, as it were. And uh, and so we, we uh, very much became the heart of migrant rights and support and integration and help and solidarity for that new that new community. Uh, and I suppose sometimes I, I, I explain it best by saying the work we started to do, we always saw it from a human rights and equality perspective, and we always saw peace from Butris Butris Galley's long bit, which was one of the things that brought us back brought us together was how many of these owl awkward people like me actually had read the United Nations Butrus Butrus Galley's Agenda for Peace and it was one of them things oh I thought nobody ever read that but me and it was just something that those of us who founded STEP basically had in common even though we might not all have entirely the same view on it so we were fundamentally that's what we were doing and uh, I'm doing it since. And the organization has grown uh, fundamentally. We still do the same thing, but we're now a bigger, uh, a bigger organization. And we facilitate a regional network called Stronger Together, which is an interracial, interethnic network for people and organizations uh, who are actually uh, working against working against racism and working for human rights and and equality and uh, keeps me off the streets and that's the only disadvantage that it has. I imagine that the work with Step has become even more important today, and that people are kind of more reliant on the network that you provide because they might not have a family network while being here. That's right. <clears throat> I think that's one of the things that that. That people tend to forget, you know, the things that are the things that are ingrained in you because you do have these networks, you do have somewhere to turn. There are things that you know, you do know pathways that may not always work for you, but you know how the system works and may not work properly, but at least you know how it's supposed to work. <clears throat> but if you're if you're devoid of that and you don't have family networks, uh, you don't have you don't have elbow room, as we call it. You don't have room to manoeuvre. You don't have the same uh, safety nets. So from helping to create those networks and then <clears throat> helping people to understand and navigate the pathways, but always doing it alongside people so that they, so that they know how to do it for themselves and also how to work together to resolve things. So it's not a, a competition, not a competition between people for who will get and who who won't. Uh, and then there are days when we say, I tell you this, it's not as easy as we make it look. 
<laughs> but we love it. I, I love it. I, I, I'm very fortunate having uh, effectively been denied the opportunity to earn my living or work, uh, which on the good side of it gave me plenty of time for mischief and other other good things. Uh, but I only really got the opportunity to undertake paid employment for the first time when I was 55 years of age. Uh, and of course, then I had no pension. I had missed a bit during the war of people who robbed the odd bank and put it down the back of the sofa for when the peace come. Uh, so I had, I had no reserves either. Uh, that's my excuse for still working. But fundamentally, I still work because um, I consider myself privileged to be paid to do the work, to do things that I would do anyway, uh, and did do anyway. And I'm always amazed. Uh, if people say, have we made any progress? I say, yes. Uh, I went to jail for doing what I now get paid very well to do. And Deirdre... As we were saying earlier, this is the first time that we've ever spoken as Berla to each other. We did well to get this far, in fairness. Yeah, and, and what, so, what, a, what a public outing it is now to be for it feels a wee bit here speaking English. Yeah. <laughs> it feels a wee bit alien. Um, Mainly embarrassed, like, but yeah, we'll, 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 we'll push through. What uh, do you be getting up to these days? What I be getting up to, making myself in my good manners. Um, I'm working... For National Children's Bureaus and a fairly big children's charity uh, with a kind of focus on um, evidence and research and trying to get that uh, as close to children and families and the people that support them. So it's interesting. I've, I've actually been there, I think, seven years this week, which is like the longest I've ever worked anywhere. I think it's like a five year, like Stalin's five year plans. That's me. Um, and then I realized I had two maternities in the middle, which accounts for it. So the, the end, the end could be now. Um, but I, uh, yeah, it is. It's, it's interesting and it's challenging for me too, Amla, because, you know, it's a very, very different way of working. I came into National Children's Bureau actually from a, uh, project that was located at STEP. It was funded with Atlantic Philanthropies um, and I was running the South the Belong program at that time, which was a family support program for black minority ethnic children and families uh, across the Southern Trust area. And I had gone from there to there from the Human Rights Commission um, and, and from, from Relatives for Justice to the Human Rights Commission. So it's the first time that I have worked for such a long period of time a step away from children and families and communities because most of my work is really about I'm not a researcher that's not my background I don't have an academic background in any of this stuff so there's another side of the house if you like that do all of that which is brilliant but the work that I look after is more about right well how do you get that into the hands of people who actually have either responsibility and remit or power or capacity to actually use that for the better to change the lives of children and families and communities and what will really happen when you take the best evidence which you know in the world and put it into a real service or a real you know a real a real life community a river park uh an education system like we've got in the north you know what happens when you take the best 
what we know should work to change lives and then actually just try and fit it in, which is mostly what we're doing. And how do you actually encourage or motivate people who've been doing it a different way to do something different and to do something better? Um, for me, that has meant that I've had to... <laughs> I, I'm essentially supporting the duty bearer now, if you like. I've worked all the rest of my adult life with the rights holders. I've worked with the people who need that, um, who, who are entitled uh, to have that support in their lives and to have a quality of life. Now I need to kind of, I'm strengthening the hand of the duty bearer, if that makes sense. You know, so it's a funny place to be. It's been challenging for me, but it's been really eye-opening because just the sheer amount of knowledge that there is in the system for me to see that and to see how little of that ever makes its way down to children or or especially children but any any community um how little of that they hold and if we say that knowledge is power it's an eye opener and i think it's still important work it still needs to be done that i mean that's how human rights work you know we're entitled to know about our rights and to have them fulfilled but by the very nature of them, the state and its agents must fulfill them better. And so I'm in this now very different place where I am essentially helping them uh, do work that should better fulfill the rights of children and families. But it's when it's not your natural place to be, uh, yeah, it's challenging. For me, it is. It's class to have the both of us here. Have you ever done like a thing together before like this? Mm. We went out to South Africa together. That's right, we did. We did about uh, ten years ago, and uh, we. Uh, that was a great eye opener there too. Thanks for that, Rhonda. Yeah, let me just say about <laughs> South Africa that I'm glad I went, but you now can't know what you know. You know that when you can't unknow what you, you can't know. Un- once you've seen it, you can't unsee it. Every day we were there, it got worse. Like we you know that, you know. I I think we I think we went with a feeling where I thought you know these people won if you know what I mean this is what society looks like when you might have been said that to have won what year was we it start, um, 2000 what are we in now 2021 20, 2011 maybe it been, uh, well it's, it's about 10 years now isn't it yeah it is, it is about that long ago you were at the human rights commission it just happened I was still at the human rights commission that was a connection and uh, burned it w- was going out through connections with Atlantic Philanthropies and that kind of mentor international mentoring scheme and we went out to brilliant brilliant people at the AIDS law project um, amazing people and meeting them and seeing their work and being so excited about it on the first day. And then it unraveling day by day, literally why that work was still important at that time, why they were still doing it and the context in which they were doing it. So we went from, you know, inner city, we went from Johannesburg into shanty towns. We went from there to the illegal, you know, the, the literal encampments that people have built on dumps that are entirely illegal and therefore totally unserviced so there are no there's no sanitation at all there no one lifts their rubbish they've you know they've put up their own lightings to go from that and then we went on out to to see the people taking refuge in the church who were essentially you know those displaced people from other African countries coming in who were a rung beneath that again and absolutely isolated and brutalized and it was i swear to god listen 
as Margaret Darcy would say, I swear to Karl Marx. I mean, you know, I, it was, I found that so difficult because I think I went hoping for more than we have got here, you know, hoping to see what that might look like and what we might, might still get. And, and I, I'll tell you, by the end of the week, it was terrifying to think the ANC are running the country. And this is, this is you know, children falling down a, a hole that's meant to be a toilet at school and dying. I mean, it, it literally, it was it was a frightening experience in terms of getting your eyes open to what we sell in terms of peace, you know, externally, what we nearly market as peaceful solutions and we're doing it here too you know don't look over there look over here shiny i i found it terrifying that's that's being honest i remember the first time when i went to palestine i don't know if you've experienced this when you were in south africa but whenever i was there which was in early 2018 i was there for maybe 10 days or something like that but we were going from place to place and meeting people and then as soon as that meeting was finished you were back in the car and going to meet somebody else and it was like one thing after another nearly like didn't have enough time to process what was going on and then it was only whenever I came back I think I came back on a Friday and I was thinking Saturday Sunday I'll just chill and then I'll be back to work on Monday grand but like see by the time Monday came I was complete I was an emotional wreck like I wasn't able to do anything Mm -hmm. for for a couple of weeks afterwards because of the fact that it just everything kind of had a chance to to kind of sink in or something like that when I was getting ready for the um the chat I was just kind of thinking about what we would talk about <laughs> and uh, I, was, I actually remember Deirdre me and yours first conversation and um, this is gonna be good we were both in Ashling Gare I was doing my work experience and you must have been doing a play or something or some kind of work for them and I just remember sitting editing something on one of the computers and you were sitting by the computer next to me and we were just chatting away but it kind of got me thinking when I was thinking back to that time and like I don't know I must have been like 15 or 16 at the time so that's like so I was probably year, 17 is what you said 20 years ago <laughs> um, <laughs> but you see looking back now at that time and even like further back than that like I really have a feeling that me and my brothers we weren't just raised by our, our man dad we were raised by kind of a community and it was um you know like people were looking after us or we were learning from other people and um it when I was looking through uh, kind of just doing a little bit of stalking on you's on uh, the internet earlier, Bernadette, I seen a, a transcript from uh, a talk that you gave at a Clarnamon conference, and there was one little kind of excerpt from it that really struck me that I thought might be a, a kind of a bit of a a starting point for um, a wee discussion. So uh, this is it. Uh, it was you were t- referencing the the war. And um, actually, I'll read the whole paragraph. It says, now the war exists for me. I'm not a soldier in the war and never have been. People may not like the war. They may not agree with the war, but the war exists. It's been a reality for me and my community. It has filled graveyards. It has filled prisons. It has created orphans. It has left women particularly, and I'm not simply saying within my community, but has left women particularly carrying a workload, which does not simply entail community organizing and debate within the only lives that we have got a very complex dynamic existence of curing welfare, holding each other's head above the water, interchanging positions. When I'm the comforter, you're the bereaved. When I'm the bereaved, you're the comforter. Or taken on collectively in a very unstructured way, uh, curing for each other's children the cur- and curing for each other's families. The initial question, Deirdre, that I was going to ask you on the back of that is 
how much of an awareness did you have of the kind of the different things that were happening around you when you were a kid? Because see now, looking back from from when I was a kid, I have these like really vivid memories of um, you know, like being at meetings where I'm just like given a couple of pounds, told to go down the road and get get some juice and crisps and come back later on or something, or just sitting there <laughs> bored to tears, like wishing that <laughs> we could just go home. Or mm-hmm. um, even being at events that I didn't really know. Like I, I still find myself Googling, like who was at there? Some must have been some kind of a funeral that we were at around 1994. And I remember where we were and who we were talking to, but I didn't know what actually it was at the time. And I'm looking back now, I think, and realizing the significance of some of the stuff um, that that was going on. But I suppose at the time, like when you're like 10, you know there's something going on, but you don't really know like exactly what's happening. And I suppose later on then, I have like recollection of becoming more interested in the debates that were going on around the table, like all of the dinners in the Culterland sitting there. Like I could probably do like a wee uh, time lapse of me from being like a six year old sitting there to being a 20 year old and be- becoming more interested in what was mm-hmm. happening around the table at the time. But I was just really curious to, to ask you like, of, of like kind of what kind of awareness did you have when you were, when you were growing up? It's a, it's a funny question, Amla, because, you know, it's one of those things where you only have the experience that you have, you know, and that, and that makes sense to you as well and much as you're saying it, which is, you know, what's 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 good, what's that like? I burned it to your mummy. <laughs> I have no idea what it what that would be like if she wasn't your mummy. I, I don't know. Um, and there's an ordinariness, I suppose, in the day to day of anybody's house or family that you know, has very little to do in any case with what your parents are doing, if you know what I mean. There's still dinners to be made and there's still something to be sorted out for school. And so all of that ordinariness is definitely there. I mean, I think there are, in the timings of our childhood, as you say, where you place them, then you can look back and say there was something particular happening at that time. I mean, certainly I was born in 1975. So the first and second hunger strikes you know, even even before the shooting in our house, the first and second hunger strikes were already part of your early childhood. And so, as you describe it, there's a whole community and network of people around you. So, you know, yes, we're at home, but there are times there when we're not at home, any of us, because it's not safe for us to be at home. So, so we're not there or we're not with our parents because they don't want to take those risks with us when... Um, you know, Miriam and, and John and others have already been have already been uh, have already been shot, and there are there you know where the, where you have um, other things happening. But so as children, you're right. There's actually something you still only see in Doctor Child days. There's still only Patricia O'Farrell and uh, Cahill McKernan's the chemist shop, and that you know Patricia and Campbell and the rest of the Campbells that are people around you who are uh, looking after you. And they are looking after you, certainly. And it's a bit like the experience that you described. There are days when, yes, you're a child and there's something happening and you have to go on ahead. It used to be a great trick in our house. <laughs> With me and her, <laughs> it would be in great competition if there was somebody coming in. Because there also, there wasn't a lot of it happening in our house, if you know what I mean. Mummy was out and about, maybe. But there were times when there were people at the house. Or, yes, the living room door is closed. But there used to be a great trick in our house to, you know, offering to bring the tea just so you could get in to see who was there. <laughs> get a snippet of what they were talking about, you know, offering to go in and lift the cups. And them saying, God, they're great girls. And you'd have elbowed the other one out of the way to get in just to be a wee bit like, and I was an earwig. I mean, I would have had, um, I was sent away for the, you know, the, the glasses that could hear through walls and all those types yeah. of things out of the comics. And as we 
that you can see down through downstairs. But yeah, and I suppose look, you know, the uh, the shooting at the house at the time. You know, my boys are the age now that me and my wee brother were then. They're you know they're two years, but Arthur was only coming two. I was five and a half, or since nine and a half. That's all a very young age at which otherwise you, our parents were not overtly bringing us into their political life or making our home life any different than anybody else's. But that came to our home, so they had no choice in that matter. That came to our home and then it's very clear that there's something else happening here. You know, so we're, we're now in somebody else's house being looked after while, you know, while, while they're in hospital. And, and that goes on for a long enough period of time. And then... You know, other children aren't too um, quiet about telling you what they hear in their house. They can fill a few gaps in for you if you're not sure who your mummy is or what's going on um, with them for you. And I suppose every, everybody reacts differently to that. There's three of us and we probably have all reacted differently to that and done our own thing. And my looking back as a child, my reaction was probably just to become a limpet. Like <laughs> where Bernard went, I went. And that probably was a bit of fear of uh, not letting her out of your sight, you know, but I enjoyed that, you know, and so yes, I did go to meetings and I did go places and I did shimmy up to see what was on and what was going and I probably took as much of an interest as any, you know, as a child that you might, but it was much about getting in the car and uh, singing. We did great, great singing went on in our carries. I also remember when we saying, God love, love them if they have us bugged, like listening to this. This is this is the quality information here that they're going to be getting um, high up on the gallows tree the whole way down the motorway, you know. So, uh, yeah, there's an awareness and an interest that develops. And, and some of it isn't maybe big P or constitutional politics. It is that experience of growing up in River Park and knowing that ours is a house that people come to. It's a house to come to use a phone because I haven't got one to ask for, you know, a lift to the hospital because they need it, uh, because they can't go into their own house uh, because they're afraid, um, you know, uh, all of those things. And um, or because nobody else in that estate would open their door to them. So that awareness of knowing that uh, that this is a place that people come to for help, I think. It's funny now in the work that I'm doing, I do a lot of work around infant mental health and early, early years to st- what we now know about brain development and neuroscience. And you have an interest there as well. Like it, what we now know about the mirror neurons, like how children's brains are wired, fired and wired because they, 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 they learn and experience what they see in all kinds of ways that, that we maybe weren't aware of before. So the chances of us maybe, you know, not growing up with an interest, not just in politics, but in people, you know, I think that all, that all shapes you. And yet, as I say, we've taken different paths and I find myself in a place now where it's not that I need or want to do maybe over, more overtly political work, but there's a really strong internal compass, as Cormac, my husband talks about the internal compass or external compass, you know, Cormac too, you know, how much of the read of that do you take from your gut and from inside yourself? And how much do you need to know and hear from other people to give you a read that something's right or wrong? So I think that internal compass is strong to say, you still know if something sits well with you or doesn't, and it can be the smallest thing. It doesn't need to be the big rights and wrongs of the world. It needs to be... Uh, 
I was at the garage yesterday and I could see there was something wrong with a very young woman with a tiny baby in front of me and be upset and been met with a stony face by the man and then a second at the local garage slide. Finally, it was the temper was breaking on me. I had no idea what they were talking about, but I could see her in a state and I could see she was getting absolutely no help whatsoever. <laughs> this is the rare and this is the badness you see of not making your own business that I had to go, excuse me, sorry, excuse me, can I help? And this young woman turned around. Do you know what was wrong? She put diesel in her car. She tapped her retard and it didn't work. And she couldn't remember her number. She just panicked. And she had tried to explain that. Nobody helped her. She then had to get her 10-day-old baby out of the car, come back in. They were giving her a form and telling her that if she, she could fill in the form, but if she then didn't pay within 24 hours, she'd give it to the police. And I just said, could you put it up on that thing? Could you put what? Could you just put the diesel up there again and just beeped it with my card? And the girl, young girl just burst out crying. The woman in the shop never yet said, do you know her? Are you, you must be minted, <laughs> which I'm not. Um, but do you know how much that girl owed on her diesel? £16.27. And she lived a couple of miles away that they wouldn't or couldn't have said, look, call back down or don't get your, don't worry about it. Take a minute and ring somebody. The temper that boiled in me in that Anna, was as much as would boil in me for something on the news tonight. That just not seeing, just and not being able to treat somebody with a basic dignity of being a human being or being able to put yourself in their shoes or see what that would be like. And maybe you know what it's like. I know what it's like to get yourself out of the house with a baby, like never mind, encounter something like that. But that's the basic day-to-day that we probably saw as much of in our rearing as we did of any big, you know, something that, you'll, as you say, you'll Google burned it or you'll see her on the news. That, that's the kind of thing that needs to light a fire in you because if it doesn't, there's something wrong. If you'd have walked on past that girl... And, and the stone cold pace of them people, and I'll not be buying my diesel end again, I can tell you that. <laughs> that kind of relates back to what you were saying there, that it not being always about the kind of the big P and like the big sort of like headlines in the newspaper, but the day-to-day things that you carry forward that can be really positive, uh, kind of carry on f- coming out of situations of conflict. And like one of the things that I was uh, kind of looking forward to to opening up a discussion on with both of, both of us was how women's contribution to the political struggle in Ireland has been portrayed or if it's been given its right its rightful place or kind of highlighted enough and see along with that I'm kind of conscious that this is a question that men don't get asked very often um Bernadette um just kind of going back to that little excerpt from the from the talk uh, that I read out there about women kind of slipping into different roles and so I'm really conscious of not asking the question of, oh, well, how did you, how did you balance, you know, being kind of like a, a leader within the community of this big movement and being a mom as well? So I suppose that's not the question that I'm asking, but the question is like, how, how did you experience that, that um, slipping in and out of different roles throughout the years and through all the, all the different things that happened? I think the the reality of it was, if, if I look at the big question first, how uh you know how was the what was the, what was the contribution and what what were the different contributions of different women uh over that whole period of struggle and and 
And the first difference was when you go to the context in which it it happens, uh, women who have children and women who have men, put it that way, women whose dependents include grown men and small children have three jobs. One, the job they're independently doing as human beings, which might be paid employment, might be political activism, it may be home building. But they do that job along with uh, child care and, and child education. And then the other job they do is man care. So if the man goes out to a paid job, uh, it's a woman's job to get him out. That's just the way it, that it was and to my mind still is. Uh, so that's core family role is the majority, you know, the majority role. And that's not to say that younger men now don't uh, take a more active part, but the sense of the coordination and holding it all together role within the family still falls to the woman, officially or unofficially. And it did then. So if men were going out to fight wars, or if men were going out to uh, pontificate about wars or organize demonstrations, I never saw a man, by and large, uh, they they were so few as to be negligible who took their children with them on those adventures. So when a man went, he went alone. So if the woman was then going, the children came with her or women organized amongst other women uh, as to who would mind children while things were being done. And so there's a more communal way of working because the children the children are mixing with other children. People are doing things by osmosis and women are not role or status oriented in that same way. You know, men are and women do, to my mind. It's a generalization, but it's the way it is. So a man is a doctor or a bricklayer or of whatever, and then he has a job to do. Whereas women do things, and women kind of uh, describe what they do rather than what they are. And that that also has maybe changed over time. So the role of women was a significantly more communal role and less militarist role than that of men. So when you talked about, uh, you know, if I talk even at the local level of of Coal Island, uh, where the, the military used to have a duck patrol and and the women in the town had a hen patrol. And it was a very simple device that uh, Madge, who used a walking stick and was thereby known as the chief of staff, <laughs> Madge, it was her idea and she organised it, that at any time the military patrol came out of the police station, which was usually to patrol the town and then pick up young lads in the street and stop and search and harass them. Uh, And then that would start rows and people would get arrested. 
So a group of women, and they were mature women. They were women who had grown children and women who'd be about the town. They might be in the cafe, they might be in the chemist shop, but they'd be going about the normal business of women. But as soon as they saw the military patrol come out of the police station, they stopped what they were doing and walked after them. No matter what they were doing, they just stopped what they were doing and they walked after them. And then he would walk alongside them and they would engage the soldiers in conversation. Like, does your, does your mother know what you do here? No. Did you? When you write home to your mummy, do you tell her, do you know what I'm paid to do here? Pick on wee boys half my age and scare the daylights out of them. Uh, stop. Uh, so it got to the point that when the soldiers came out and saw Madge and her patrol coming towards them, they turned and went back in again. And, and that was a totally non-militaristic, spontaneously reactive response to that element of control that gave people heart and encouraged other people to join in so that it got bigger. It got to be the bit that when the soldiers came out, women follow, women in the street followed them and, uh, and the soldiers couldn't come out. The soldiers had been brought in because the police wouldn't come out and the soldiers used to escort the police out. So it was, you know, it wasn't snipers it wasn't the fear of being shot or blown up in the street that stopped military patrols in Cool Island it was Kathleen Doris who just by the way in passing is Michelle Doris's granny but but it was Kathleen Doris and and Madge and and Peggy and Philomena and uh, Oliver Carr's mum who did that but they're there that's gone apart from people who live in Quill Island and know that and me telling you that's not an integral part of the struggle although those things and things like them happened everywhere if you think of the Falls women curfew uh, and it was the women the women who broke it the women who just went out and said we need bread we're talking lots about curfew. You have to go for bread. We need milk. Get out of here. And all went together. And what are you going to do? You know, what are you going to do? A bundle of women coming down the street uh, saying, we're, you know, basically not so much shouting bread and, and roses for International Women's Day as bread and milk. We have children to feed. But when the history of the struggle is in, been recorded because it was profiled as the struggle between the Republicans, as it were, between the IRA and the British Army, and it got narrowed largely into that, then anything that wasn't in that became secondary. And then when you began, and that's not where women predominated. So all of the mass action all of the community action, all of the solidarity action, as I said, in, in 
you know, the people, the people who carried wakes and funerals and family breakups and men going to jail and women and children with no income when they went to jail and and the best of good stuff coming out of very poor households to go to the prisons while there was hardly enough to feed the children left at home. And the work of the, the prisoners' dependence funds, getting everybody to gather up to ensure that didn't happen. And sorting out men who went to fight for Ireland's freedom and were brutalised and come home and beat their own women. And women who went out onto the street to stop police beaten men, to go home and get beaten by the men that were protected. All of those things were women's struggle. All of those things. And all of those contradictions and, and being with you and being against you when you were wrong were the dilemma of women. And solidarity across whoever it was and whatever organization they were in was women's work. But when history comes to be written through the power struggles, those stories aren't there. And then you begin to see women's participation in that period being almost only defined by did women, what women contributed to the IRA, as opposed to that wider struggle. And what was lost there was the learning about organizing and the learning about solidarity and, and the fundamental humanity. Because what war and military action does is brutalize brutalizes your thought process and your sensitivities and and the degree of brutalization of the community would have been significantly worse if that network of communal solidarity and building hadn't hadn't been going on and the women also by and large were able uh, the cities may have been different but in the rural area, people lived in villages and, uh, you know, there was no such thing as a postman that didn't deliver the post in Moigashal and in Coal Island. You know, and if you wanted to go to the shop and you wanted to go to the town, it wasn't like West Belfast. It wasn't self-contained. It wasn't like the Shankill and those communities. It wasn't self-contained in the rural areas. You had to get out on the road and go from A to B. And every road was a potential threat. Every road you travelled uh, was a road outside of your own safety zone, by and large, unless you lived in very small communities and villages with, with less than 500 people in them and you never went out. So lots of that was different and and that whole uh, political with a large P or a small P, that solidarity, that humanity, that understanding of 
that instinctive understanding of rights was effectively as it normally is in war held not by the fighters but the fighters couldn't have fought without it but the whole struggle tended to get pulled into and defined by the war and then the history of those struggles were written in terms of what was and what was not contributing to getting the IRA or the Republican movement to the table. And ironically, when you look now at the, you know, the celebrations of, of the rising and the war of independence and the, the, the partition and the treaty, that it's only now that the various roles of women at that point, people are now writing them up. So maybe we'll all get a look in uh, uh, about 50 more years years from now. And it's almost as, as if it's not safe to talk about women uh, at a time when other women could learn from the experience of what they're doing. So we keep having to reinvent that wheel uh, every second generation. Yeah, so what do you think about that, having grown up with all of this kind of organising going on around you? What do I think about it? Well, I mean, I suppose I could say that, they're, they're, you know, we talked a wee bit about those influences. Um, I think the organising thing is interesting at all levels because, as Bernd had saying there, it's not, it's not that that is a thread that has been held on to, whether that thread's been cut or dropped or we had too many threads to hold. I, I think you definitely see, and I see in, in the work in some of the communities that I've been involved in, in working in here as well, that it, it often feels like we're starting again and starting from scratch in a way that it doesn't necessarily make sense for us to be. And, and it's really, I'm just, I'm, I'm listening <laughs> to Bernadette as you're listening, saying that, you know, about how deliberate is that Um as a strategy that that we don't, whether that's through a written history or an oral history or um, just given atten- that the due attention that it should receive, how deliberate is that, that, that thread of organisation? Where it is strong, it's strong. And you know it in the Irish language community as well. But we, we look at, at uh, communities and minority communities here that it's, it's not there, you know. And we, we saw that. With the treatment action campaign in South Africa, they're really, really strong, like political literacy campaign for people whose circumstances, because I think the argument sometimes here is, and, and rightly so to an extent, that people's lives are either so deprived or so depressed or oppressed uh, that the expectation that they might also be organizing outside of keeping, you know, children fed or heat on. Uh, is unrealistic and deliberate part of the way that the system is built. And yet we saw that in those communities that I described to you, an entire network of uh, not just young, but there were a lot of a lot of very young people involved in community activism and not just activism, but active organization of communities and the sharing of their knowledge and literacy with others uh, who would become a kind of peer or community educators like a spider web, an absolute network. And that's something we've talked a good wee bit here ourselves about recently is, you know, where are the threads that we can pick it up and who do we learn it from? And if we need to learn it from 
South Africa or for other places, but there are people here that, as you say, there are not necessarily written in the history or acknowledged for their contributions in all kinds of, uh, you know, in, in, in Eleanor Roosevelt terms, in the smallest places closest to home who have done that and have those skills. And it definitely feels like we're still in a place where there are great, there's some great projects on the PPR, the Participation and Practice of Rights Project in Belfast that's working with small communities of people around mental health and around housing. But there's there's a lot to be done there. And, and you know, and, and I credit you, I see the work that you're doing there, you know, even in a new community that isn't your, you know, it's not, it's not where you're from, but you bring something with you that is uh, that you can't really put it down that you you value people and community and breaking bread with people and saying that's where it starts and actually caring about each other uh, and it feels like we're in a funny place maybe where uh, we should there should be more of that happening than there is and certainly where it is happening and there are some great campaigns but they are all either very localized or so concerned that they will not that that they achieve their own gains, and I think we've seen this across. You know, years ago, uh, we tried at, at at a very broad human rights level to bring some of those campaigns together. That we would that they would be more explicitly rights based or rights aware, um, so that that organisation would be more about. Uh, supporting rights regardless of it being my campaign or yours of it being so you look at we have Irish language community we have great people young people um, working around young women working on period poverty poverty you have you know uh, campaigns for for around um, sexuality we've had the campaign around abortion and everything else but there's not a place or a space where all of us view or see each other as part of the same organization and part of going right back to that basic humanity and the right of people to be fulfilled in their potential in life we're still there's still something not there and yet we're we're, we're talking this up as a rights-based society which just takes me to the fair but anyway I, yeah i think we've sold ourselves some lies as well about how far down the road we are some um, of the things sorry some of the things you're talking about there like you know the way when you're looking at the passing of time and we're after coming out of a war situation and like, so there's not an armed struggle going on anymore, but some of the issues that you mentioned there, like uh, abortion rights and even like, uh, like marriage, uh, marriage referendum and stuff like that was in, that was in the South and, uh, things like direct provision or people who are coming into the country from like, as, as refugees, they seem to be, um, a lot of the current issues of today, like period poverty as well, as you mentioned, and a lot of those campaigns are being driven by women as well. And to go back, Bernadette, to what you were saying there about trying to having to start again every second generation, is are these are the issues of today that women are kind of driving in many ways in similar way that women in the 70s and the 80s and the 90s were driving kind of separate issues. And I suppose what I have in my head is like, what can we do to make sure that the likes of the women around Cold Island getting the Brits to go back into the barracks, that those women are given recognition and that their stories are told, and also that the women that are driving a lot of these uh, really important campaigns today, that their 
uh, their work and their commitment to these causes and the struggles are being recognised? Well, I think I think there's there's two things, uh, and there's I suppose responsibilities on both sides. I say what should be happening, and then I don't do I don't do enough of this kind of stuff here because if there's nobody if there's nobody left to tell it. Only me. I'm still here, and I started very young, so a lot of the people I work with are older than me and no longer here. So if those of us who hold the stories don't tell them, and I think I think there's a a lot in the there's a lot in the telling of them, as opposed to the writing of them. Uh, and and personally, I have a great I I I think that Bellages is a very different thing from book learning. And the 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 recording of oral histories and voices, even if they're second generation at some point in this stage, should be collected. And they don't have they don't have to be collected as a big project. People should be talking to their grannies. That's really what people should be doing. And everybody else's granny and their next door neighbor. Uh, about everything, because one of the things that fascinated me about the Repeal the AIDS campaign was that there was an assumption by most of the young women in that campaign that their grannies would be anti-choice, that their grannies would be anti-abortion. And so they put out, which was a very good, you know, it was a very good uh, message, talk to your granny and win her over. And when all these young women talked to their grannies, they knew a damn sight more about abortion than their young women knew. And what actually happened that was that large swathes of these young women didn't realise that they had radical grannies in terms of women's rights. So that, but that that seemed to get stuck there. And then people people didn't think, oh, God, I must ask my granny about something else, because she might act, that might not be a one-off. Uh, so I think there is a lot about uh, there's a lot about that in terms of at least documenting in 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 uh, in small places the lived experience of people that collectively shaped that time. But I think there is also at a at a different level as well, there is there's a there's a bit of truth telling has to go on in terms of how we perceive ourselves. And what I quite find fascinating is what's creating that dynamic is nothing about us. What has created the new conversation is the new people. Black Lives Matter has opened a conversation to say to all of us, who exactly do you think you are? Because I tell you who you look like to us. You look like people that got fattened on our slavery. 
And we're saying, oh, no, 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 we're the same as you. And they're saying, uh, don't look at like it from where I'm standing. Not because your skin color is different. That's not what they're saying. They're saying, where do you stand on what's happening to us? Because if you believe in rights and equality, if you're the, if you're the children of struggle for rights here, where are you when we are here in direct provision? How come you never knew in your history of your struggle that Frederick Douglass was here? How come Mary Ann McCracken has got a new lease of life? Not because of her role in terms of the United Irish Men, not in terms of her role of radical Presbyterianism within Irish society, but she's been rehabilitated in society because she was an abolitionist. And, and I think all of that is very healthy because it's creating a critical analysis for us of ourselves. And one of the most inspiring things I, I see, you know, when, when I'm looking for when I'm looking for the matches and when I'm looking for the organizing women and seeing who's doing it, yes, there are good organizations like PPR and people, good projects, but who are the people who are doing it for themselves? Young black women who have not been conditioned here to speak with a certain deference to the police because they're not as bad as the police we used to have because they've been conditioned to think this isn't the old police, this is the new police, so give the new police a chance and don't be giving them bad manners. These young women spell it out and say, excuse me, Mr. Policeman, is your job actually to protect the citizens or to pick on black people? Because it looks to me that that's what you do. And then you have to answer that question and you're not trying to find the peace and reconciliation gloves to wrap it up in uh, and some consensus and non-provocative way that, that might not offend a police officer or might not disturb the balance of the peace by pointing out to this man he's doing a lousy job of being a police officer protecting the citizens and they spell it out how it is and they're not afraid to organize and they're not afraid to to hold people to account and they're not afraid to speak you know we speak of speaking truth to power they're not afraid to do it and they're and they're not in strong positions you know they're not in they're not in stable positions uh, they're not protected from the consequences of that <clears throat> in terms of being able to make uh, a sustainable living and to progress their personal careers and whatever it else is it is people people want to do to build their own lives so the there's a great deal of inspiration around uh, the young <clears throat> the young immigrant movement and particularly around the black lives matter movements that i see and within the Stronger Together network in which I work, if I'm looking for young 
fearless, principled young women to lead social change for the whole society, I would be looking, and if I had to start and name them all, most of the people I would name within the context of Northern Ireland wouldn't be white young women. And and to me, I, I don't mean that that's a bad thing. I think it's absolutely brilliant that that, that is there. Uh, and I think that changes the dynamic of the conversation that we're having. Uh, it will change the dynamic of the conversation around a shared island, a united Ireland, uh, a post-Brexit, whatever. Uh, and we have to get used to that because it's the same as everything else. The world is changing. And I keep saying to people, hold on to your hats, folks. The revolution shall not be white. I'm just so delighted, so delighted. And it shall not be male either. That's not to say that it will be black and female. But the idea where, with the greatest respect to Karl Marx, who should not be confused with Jesus Christ, he's not God either. And a revolution will, you know, it will, it will come. But... It will not be led by the leaders of small left-wing sects who are predominantly white and male-led. When it's coming, it'll be the same as it happened the last time. All those who thought they were leading it will have to run like hell to catch up with the young women at the front. Bernadette, what was it that inspired you so much when you were over in America with the Black Panthers? I read earlier that you said that you learned a lot about feminism from them. Well, it was the same, you know, in a different way as Jared was talking about the South African experience. And I'll say nothing about South Africa other than uh, when the two of us went and, and my maternal instincts were there, I could see, uh, you know, I could see the impact of South Africa on on my daughter because you could see all those things. And and I was seeing them too, and but yet I was seeing them in a slightly less traumatic and, and traumatised way uh, because, because there were things about that just that inspired me that people organised. But when I went to America, my experiences were a bit more like Deirdre's in South Africa. I, uh, I just catapulted into America. Uh, I know... It had never crossed my mind to have the slightest interest of what America looked like. I wasn't in it. But America was an eye-opener to me. Uh, one, I had never physically encountered wealth that I saw in America that was commonplace. You know, the differential between the life of the average person, organized, working, Irish-American, American, white people, was something I had never envisaged before coming from rural Northern Ireland and poverty. Uh, and so I stayed in the houses of really nice people and good people. But their houses to me were like small hotels. I'd never seen, I'd never 
till I went to America, been inside a house that had five bedrooms in it and three toilets in a basement and a woman who did. I discovered the woman who did when I went to America. Almost every house had one. A woman who came in and did. So you, as in any house when you had an Irish custom, uh, if you were in, in your neighbour's house and you had food, you'd get up and help to wash the dishes and they always said, oh, no, leave them, we have a woman. They had a woman who did that, a maid, a servant, or something. They didn't see them as that, but they were women who came in, minded the children, did the washing, did the housekeeping, did something. And the women who did were almost invariably women of colour. So almost the, the average working American successful person with whom I was lodging, and I'm, I'd never seen it, and I'm looking at it, looking at that difference. And, and I could see the people who had an attitude to those people, but they were servants. You know, the, they, they were the housekeeper, they were whatever, but they were beneath them. Didn't say they treated them badly, they were patronizing and the people were beneath them. And as you know, as Dirty said, you know, what's in you is in you. And every time I saw it, I'd say, why, why do you do that? Why do you? Uh, and I could just see it that the kind of racist behavior that people can't see in themselves that is just so blatant when you can see it, you can't not see it. And I could see that, I could see that if I relocated everything about me to America, if I relocated my social economic position, my second class citizenship in society, the fact that people didn't know whether you were an improvement because you were half educated, so you might, there's a prospect you could be civilized, or there was no excuse for you having been educated for misbehaving. But one way or the other, if I had been relocated to America, I'd be a person of color. That's what I understood. I, this is my place, is my social economic, if I lived here, these are my people. This is my community. These are my neighbors. Because if I, because at home, I don't know anybody. I don't know anybody who lives like the people I'm currently mixing with. I don't, I don't know anybody who lives like the people I'm being carried around to meet like some kind of trophy I'm coming to speak. And the more I go to meetings and the more I hear from them, they sound like people I don't even want to be with. So I end up arguing. I end up at doing this at these, at these meetings. And, and that word gets out on the street. I don't know how that happens, but that word gets out on the street or you're seen on a TV program. And there's a lot of that publicity. So the more I opened my mouth, from the point of view of the Irish community, the more I put my foot in it, 
But the more I opened my mouth, the more people who are actively involved in social change and radical politics in America start saying, what did I hear on the Because they never heard that on American television before. Never heard at that point young white people challenging racism. Young white people saying, I understand I'm not allowed to say socialism out loud, so if we can just get over that first of all, and I'm going to say socialism just to break the ice because I'll probably say it three or more, four more times before I'm finished speaking. And people, you're just being funny. People go, you could just see people going like this. She's going to talk about socialism. So the more, the more then I went to public gatherings to speak, the more young black people turned up at them, and the more I realized they weren't welcome. And so by the time I'd got from New York, where I had... Because this, this was what was happening in the big Irish-American controlled cities. You go and meet the mayor, you get the keys of your, your New York, the Philadelphia Bell, the keys of San Francisco, whatever else they give to passing dignitaries in some other city. And you gathered up this trumpery and moved on. But each time they were getting more and more worried about what the hell is going on here? Who is this young woman? Who sent her over here? And the civil rights movement are being contacted and saying, why did you do this to us? They promised to send somebody over. They sent Frank Gogarty. Frank was a local CRA dentist and, uh, and was much closer to Republicans than me. So while, uh, while he solved some of the problems he didn't solve, civil right conservative NICRA problem, uh, which was interesting because the Communist Party were supposed to be running it. But by the time I had got across to, to Detroit, uh, it had got to the point, well, I refused to meet the mayor of Chicago. I, I just, when I got to Chicago and realized the mayor of Chicago was waiting to greet me. I said, I, I, I wouldn't get out of the car. I wouldn't. I couldn't. To go, how could you go on? Uh, yeah, I know there are people who can shake hands with Prince Charles, but I'm not one of the number. So I couldn't do it. And I never, I never on that occasion, actually set foot in Chicago, other than at the airport, because I was put into this limousine to be taken to, to to City Hall and I wouldn't get out to meet the mayor so they swung me round and put me on the plane again out and I was never invited back there for years upon years. So, but for me when I'm trying to figure all of this out, I was also the darling of the women, American women's liberation movement. And then I discovered they also had women who did and I said, well, hang on a minute, what kind of women's movement is this? If it's made up of white, professional, liberal kind of women. And I, I was very bad once because I did the way I described it, but that's the way I saw it. I said, just all these women's liberation women who are in possession of a small dog, a quiet man and a woman who does. 
and they were. They were. They were women of class, which was not mine. And they did not seem to have a political understanding of what was happening in the black movement. So then I started to, to, to meet uh, black women and ask them about the women's liberation movement. And, and they said there was a black feminist movement. Uh, and so that's, that's how I learned most of, because uh, people will then tell you you should read this and read that. So my first feminist readings were bell hooks and black feminist readers. Uh, I don't think I ever got around to reading Jeremy and Greer yet because that's just where, where where it was. And then it ended up that uh, I left, you know, I just, uh, that was a whole different story. I left and came home. I'd had enough of that. And uh, and Dad had enough of me. Uh, and then I realised I had no passport. I, uh, that's a whole different story. How did I get to America with no passport? There's no way I could have gone other than through the diplomatic channels of the Irish government. There's no other way that would have worked. Uh, so they probably weren't too pleased either. That was a mancog technicule. They wouldn't be making a second, <laughs> a second time. But it meant that I'd independently no way of getting back until I'd negotiated my way out. Uh, so when I got, when I, got home then uh, this was starting this you know I was back uh, Eamon McCann was sent out uh, so I said to, you know when you're there give those give those keys your keys with you and we had agreed that he would take the keys with him when he was going and uh, and give them on my behalf to the to the Black Panthers who had more need of, of the freedom of New York than I did because they were being slaughtered in it by the police and and everywhere else. Uh, but people in America quite rightly said that I, in fact, had a, a tr such a traumatic impact on the Irish American community that never was healed till Jerry Adams went over and smoothed their ruffled feathers to a tune. They, they certainly have it in for socialism over there. I was sitting at a table. A dinner table in New York there just before all of this kicked off and there was an Irish American there who um he just went off on one about socialism and I, and I kind of looked up and the, one of my friends was sitting beside me it was actually Liam Oak and uh, I just felt his, his hand coming onto my leg and just tapping me on the leg to get me to just settle down again because <laughs> your mom was paying for the dinner you see like all the stuff that we're, that we're talking about here like and the civil rights movement in Ireland and the um, black liberation movement in America. What are the things, was an open question for, for the both of you really like, but what elements of those things can we carry forward um, today? And I suppose that that might be kind of a nice way to um, bring the conversation to a head and um, just have a, a little bit of a chat about, I suppose in, on, in one sense, how do we make a positive contribution to women's struggles today? But also, just in general terms, like what are the elements of, of things that we've learned from um, those different periods of struggle and kind of applying them to where we're at today? I think as you're as you're talking there, Anne, you know, um, 
whether whether it's all civil rights movements or you know as you say the the, the big um, struggles for for freedom and, and justice and and I think that's a kind of ever will it be so you know uh, that those bigger battles have to be won, but I, I think you know looking even at this year and the way that the kind of way that we've needed and had to live has changed. Uh, our lives I I think we'll have to pay the closest attention to those small places close to home you know to to what family life looks like now and what that might look like um for the girl child for how we were boys you know uh for how for how we do that um because those are going to be uh the young men young women that being at home and being, I'm a, I, I have two boys, you know, and who they are and how they are and how they view women uh, will matter, you know. And there's nobody going to wear them, only me. Do you know what I mean? And therefore, the those networks, it's, it's bringing everything that you talked about there in terms of those social networks, the family supports, the community that you live in what young people see and hear and grow up in, the expectations they have, the confidence they do or don't have in themselves. And I think identity is a big part of that. And, you know, you talk there about those young black women who, who know who they are because they have no choice but to know it. They know who they are and they're reminded of it on a daily basis, exactly who they are. But that positive self-identity that at the core means you don't need to go out and challenge somebody else's. That's something that has to be built. And I see a lot of, not, not only young people, but I see a lot of people in the, in our communities who just aren't uh, aren't that sure of that, of who they are, or who they're not, or um, what their identity is, or how 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 um, confident they feel in it. So those smaller, you know, cold face community places and spaces and conversations. You know, I'm interested. You said they're branded about like the power of the podcast or these types of just communications that people can listen to and hear and think about in their own time rather than being educated and told, you know, and checking in if you know, did you get it and, and could you be marked on it? They matter. And yet we have to have an eye to those bigger issues. So it mightn't look like it from where we're sitting, but of those young, of, of that kind of 15 to 19 year old, like young people, one in four girls worldwide is not in training, education, or employment in that age range compared to one in 10 boys. That's that's massive. So with the movement that we have in the world, you have to have an eye to that. When, when one in three girls or women has experienced some form of uh, physical or sexual violence, then... That didn't happen, but from the person who is closest to them in their home or their family or the community, that that happened in some type of of intimate relationship or or, clo- or close relationship. And then we know that the poorest women, the poorest women, so never mind the worldwide bit of it, the poorest women that the the Marmot Review, Sir Michael Marmot, which is UK kind of wide, the poorest women are dying. Their 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 lifespan is getting shorter. When in any kind of you know. Our, that fundamental kind of mental and physical well-being, our health, when the lifespan of everybody is extent, is being, it's, it's getting longer, we're all living longer. 
but not here. It's not the poorest women, their lives are getting shorter. So it's finding the place in between the big things that need that vision and forward plan and that organization that you're talking about and then not missing what's under our nose, exactly how we are in all of the human relationships that we create for the children around us and what to see. Because as you have become the man that you are, I knew as a child, you have, you know, you have, we're the sum of all those parts, you know, and you can, you can see, as you say, an adult, the benefit of that. And yet we know that there's children and families that are, if it's, it might be stepped, but there's nobody else looking the road that they're on. And so becoming ingrained in them is a self, a sense of that being beneath, of being less than, and, and, and that pervades. And so the belief that there are in the world people who are worth more than others, uh, you, you could see it on, on a day to day. So, uh, you know, I think there's a whole lot of things to do as a challenge to me, like I say, in the work that I'm doing now, to say my feet are too far off the ground for my liking, but what do I do about that right now? Uh, but how I wear my boys matters, and maybe you know I, I might have said yes or no to making time to do something like this to say I think it I think it's helpful. I think I think those conversations um, matter. It, not necessarily that everybody wants to contribute to them, but if they can just even think, just thinking is, is a good start, and encouraging people to think uh, is something not to take for granted. What you're saying there, for good or for bad, like the last year, we've all ended up kind of in this bizarre situation where people who are like families are spending much more time together and um, those small things have become I suppose bigger things really because like like you're saying like if, if people are homeschooling and um, people are kind of more confined to the family home more than ever before and the other thing that springs to mind there and I don't mean to open up a whole other hour of conversation but you know the, the, of the bigger issues that you mentioned are about people kind of not feeling like they have confidence in themselves or feeling like there's some sort of a hierarchy where they're lower on the ladder than somebody else must have um, a lot to do with all of the marketing and the advertising that we're exposed to more than ever through like every single channel that you can think of, TV and the internet and the phones and everything. And I suppose that's probably one of the, the big issues in terms of people young people especially um confidence in themselves is being able to live in that world of marketing and advertising and be able to still have the confidence in themselves and and the, the love for themselves despite everything else that's being thrown at them yeah so i saw something recently you said you know liking yourself as a modern day act of rebellion you know and so it is and it's a good it's a good place to start i think that's i think that's very wise uh because one of the things that I think has been very core in my own life is that, and then I see it in, where it's not in other people, is that we were brought up by, by well, my father died when I was nine, but before he died and then subsequently by my mother, consciously to believe, you know, she used to say things like, hold your... You, get, you know, keep your head up and keep your head down and we say kind of make make up your mind. But we knew it. She meant hold your head up and and keep your chin up and walk. You know, there's nobody better, nobody better than you. She would tell us that nobody, nobody better than you. And there's nobody worse than you. So we 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 had this uh 
confidence in ourselves and small things like Deirdre laughing about singing in our car. We sang in our house. We put on concerts. We we did play it. We had an erect. We went down more sofas for extra money than the Department for Communities <laughs> at the end of a financial year. But uh, that's my that's my clock that keeps chiming all over this conversation. Sorry about that. Uh, but uh, the uh, having that having that sense from childhood, having that sense that you matter, that you count, that you are somebody, simply because you are somebody, and it's not about your financial status, it's not about uh, your height, and it's not about uh, how clever you are. Uh, it's because you are, because you are and you have a right to be, and you have a right to be you. And the things that matter is that in being yourself, you do not deprive other people of their right to be them. And and you respect people for who you are and you take them as you find them. And you start from there. And I think a lot of that is lost in, in the way that we live. So I suppose coming back to your question, like where do we start and what do we do? If we go back to the 70s and the women's movement of the 70s, the great slogan, and I stand by it to this day, is you dig where you stand. You start where you are and you dig where you stand. So for many people, the best they can do for today and tomorrow may well be the purely personal in the way they conduct their relationships with other people, in the way they do not, in the way they are witness and they are ally to everybody around them. So it is not in their company that people make racist remarks about travelers. It's not in your presence that somebody leaves a woman and child embarrassed and fearful because they can't remember the pin number on a bloody hole in the wall card. So that may be as much as you can do for a while. But if you can do more and you're doing more and you're you're organizing whatever national campaign, it's not worth anything if you don't do the small personal bit as well. If you haven't got time if you haven't got time to be what you proselytize, then move along the bus because you're going to be a problem sooner or later. So I, I think if you, we can't all do everything, but we can all do something. And in the process, I think we do have to then think. But that's a process of when you get to the point of thinking. How does it all sit together? Because the one thing when we talk about uh, you know, how, we, how we do anything against the reality that we're actually <clears throat> killing the planet we live on. You know, so uh, time is finite. And there's a bit about me says, did you not already know that? Time, time is finite. 
you know, time is finite. Everybody's personal time is finite anyway. And it has just dawned on the human race that they too might be extinct. Whatever made human beings think that they shouldn't follow that pattern, given all the other things that are extinct and whose extinction we have helped, whatever made people think it wouldn't apply to us. But what is killing us more than anything else is the false illusion about why we exist. You know, why do any of us exist in our small, limited sphere? We are social animals driven to exist for as long and as well and as harmoniously as we can and to accept that that won't be forever. But somehow we have been driven to believe that the purpose we exist is to earn money, to build a house, to pay for a house, to build a bigger house, to get to work quicker, to do more work, to earn more money, to buy more stuff that we're not going to need, that we'll give away to charity. And when we've emptied the house, we'll start again. At a very personal level, we are driven to believe that we live to consume all in front of us, to regurgitate it and consume it again. That's what happened at the fall of Rome, <laughs> that people just existed to serve us greed. And what's killing us is, is alienation from our own human selves and human solidarity in the false drive created by marketing, created by capital to consume and consume, to earn money and to spend it for no reason other than to increase the profit margin of less than 10% of the population who can't spend the money that they acquire. And if we are going to, you know, see what's out in front of us, the thing that we forget is that if we're going to save the planet and save the world and save the revolution, counterintuitively, we all have to slow down. We just all have to slow down because we are on a speed circuit to self-destruction at an individual level, at a local level, because everything has to be done today. Everything has to be done tomorrow. Everything should have been done yesterday. It's making us ill at an individual and collective level. It's making society ill. Uh, we talk about people who have mental health problems because they cannot cope with a mentally ill society. It's society that's sick. It's the system that's sick and it's making people ill and it's killing us all. So while we're all rushing to change it, my Women's Day message is slow down, you move too fast. That's an old, an old 70s song. Got to make the morning last yeah. We could have done, we could have done, actually done a wee, there could have been a medley soundtrack gone with that, you know, 
Because I was thinking of Solidarity Forever at one point, and then you went from there into the Ballad of Accounting, and then yeah. you moved into and Teach Your Children Well was in there. I don't know, Anna, if you want to. You can do it. You, you can do it yet now. Well, I was like, just gonna we, say we could uh, just for <laughs> another day. For another day, we throw in bread and roses as well. Yeah. But right. I think I think that'll that'll do it for the night. Gormila Maiga Tien. Yeah, Gormila. Gaunt of Elortlot, Emerl of you. This episode of the Rebel Matters podcast was presented by me, Anne Carlan, and produced by Vicky Langan. The Rebel Matters podcast is 100% funded by our followers over on Patreon and we are very grateful for that support. If you'd like to become a patron, then you can find us on www.patreon.com forward slash Rebel Matters where you can see the various tiers of support that you can choose from. Every single bit of support that we get here at the Rebel Matters podcast means a lot to us and really does help to keep the show on the road. Anyway, that's all for me this week. So, Gajian Kedarella Akarja, Slan Gafoil, August Kenny Fiore.